You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Detective Smith was called backstage to investigate the Inwood murder. It looked like a rather routine affair. He hardly expected it to lead to the most dangerous adventure of his life, romance. The case presented a few clues and a few bodies. A very dead body. A very heavenly body. A very suspicious body. And finally, a very charming busybody who started out by getting tangled in the strings of the mystery and finished by getting tied up in the strings of his heart. Taking all the trouble to protect my reputation, covering up the accident... Destroying that dreadful dress. I didn't destroy it. So long as I have the dress, I'm the one who decides how long this show will run. And everything else. Do you understand? You fool! There goes evidence that could have helped you. Well, you're not to say things against Charlotte. I'm doing all this for her sake. You're just jealous of her. Let them say, if they like, it's satirical. It sounds to me remarkably like blackmail. I think I'd better call the police. Yes, do call the police, Miss Inwood. We'll talk to them together. Who are you? Welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Professor Tanya Modleski. Great to be back talking about Hitchcock. Also along for the ride this week is Mr. Philip O'Neill. Hello, all the way from Sweden here. This week we are talking about Stage Fright, the 1950 film from Alfred Hitchcock, in which young actress Eve Gill, played by Jane Wyman, tries to prove the innocence of her unrequited love, Jonathan Cooper, played by Richard Todd. In order to do so, she must take on the role of a maid and dresser to another actress, Charlotte Inwood, played by Marlena Dietrich. A word of warning that we'll be getting to some spoilers on this episode, so I would recommend finding a copy of the film first before you listen to the show if you don't want this 66-year-old movie ruined for you. That said, Philip, when was the first time that you saw Stage Fright, and what did you think? It was when I talked to you, Mike, about coming on the show, and you said, well, I got a couple of movies here, and one of them was Stage Fright. And I said, well, okay, Hitchcock. Yeah, I can talk about Hitchcock. I watched it twice, and the first time I saw it, I had to say, I, and it was because of the movie. I, I was just very tired. I fell asleep, so I didn't see the ending. And so I thought to myself, I thought I knew the movie. I thought, okay, so Charlie, uh, the character of Charlene, uh, Charlotte, I mean, is the killer, and he's been framed and all that. I thought, But when I rewatched it, I was surprised by the twist that came later. And, oh, so the flashback was <laughs> all that was okay. So, yes, I, and the film was a lot better actually, then, when I rewatched it. I, I liked it, but in many ways, I found it to be, I don't, I don't, I don't know if you should call it a routine Hitchcock film, but it, it had all the elements of what I've seen in other Hitchcock films. You have the man 
frame for a murder that he apparently didn't commit and he's on the run from the authorities and all of this of course there's a twist at the end which kind of um, <laughs> it's kind of Hitchcock playing with his own uh, how do you call it uh, scenarios here it was I thought a quite decent Hitchcock film is what I ultimately uh, is ultimately how I felt about it when I saw it at the end I wasn't I don't think it's one of Hitchcock's best films I think it's one of his just quite uh, decent films that he made Tiny, how about you? When was the first time you saw it, and what did you think? Oh, back in the 80s. <laughs> That's the first time. I haven't seen it in a long time since. But the first thing I thought and still can't get out of my mind is the bloody skirt and the bloody doll that held up to um, Marlene Dietrich, Charlotte Inwood, as she's on stage singing La Vie Rose. Um, and if it were only that scene alone, I would think it's great Hitchcock. It's only for that scene alone, but I think it's great in many other ways, too. I saw this one early 90s when I was in college. I'm trying to remember if I saw this for part of my uh, women in, in film class or if I saw it as part of a Hitchcock class. I think I saw it as part of a Hitchcock class. And uh, same thing. It was that dress with the stain on it that really stuck with me. <laughs> that stuck with me more than the false flashback that we're going to be talking about just that image of that bloody dress and the the bloody dress that we have at the beginning and even the bloody dress that Alistair Sim kind of sees and everything, all of that just and really, really... And he holds really, it in front of him. He holds it in front of him as if he were, like, you know, dressing in it. It stands in front of a mirror. <laughs> Alistair Sim in this movie, there's, he's got a lot of good stuff going on in this. Oh, he's wonderful. So let's talk a little bit more about the plot. Let's kind of break it down here. We we start with a safety curtain, which is kind of going to uh, play a role in the film later on. It's one of those things I've always heard uh, people say that if you watch the first five minutes of a Hitchcock film, you kind of know what the last five minutes are going to be like. Or at least there are some hints there. So we start off with this safety curtain rising and setting the scene, and the scene is London. So this was actually, Hitch had already moved to the United States, had gotten away from doing British pictures, and this was his first British set film in a few years. So it was uh, a return to form in some ways, and he was going to be playing with the idea of uh, these British characters and British sensibility. And it's interesting that our main character, Jane Wyman, is an American, and they, they even have a line in there to kind of cover up her accent, which might be a little spotty at times, <laughs> that she had spent some time in America. So Quite spotty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Especially when she tries to do kind of more of the, the maid accent uh, the, when she lowers her class. We start off in a car once we get into London, and this car that's driving really fast through the streets, and that's where we're introduced to Eve and to Jonathan, and Jonathan starts to tell this story. I think Eve has the first line, but Jonathan quickly takes over as the narrator, and he tells this story that takes us into this extended flashback, which lasts for, I think, about the first 13 minutes of the film. And it's very interesting to me the way that he starts to tell the story and his voice fades out almost too quick. Like if I were editing the audio, I would have thought that it was a mistake, but his voice doesn't really lay over the images that we're seeing at all. It 
maybe the first few seconds worth, and then he is out of there. He really just sets the stage as far as him being at home and his buzzer going, and then boom, his audio is out, and we're into this flashback where we are seeing, I shouldn't say where he is telling, because it just seems like we are seeing the world and figuring out who is our who's in control of these images i find to be very interesting as well i was in my kitchen it was about five o'clock the doorbell rang and i went downstairs to see who it was so this is also the first time that we see stairs and there are so many stairs in this film it is not even funny we have him going downstairs to open up the door and there's a woman standing there i don't even think we see her face at first what we see is this jacket and it opens up almost immediately and there's this dress with this blood stain on it that we were talking about before you know, you have the curtain rising, and in, as you say in the beginning, the safety curtain, and the first image that we have of the woman, the door opens, and she's wearing a dark coat, and she immediately opens up the coat, as if it were curtains, and you see a bloody a dress bloodied from the bottom of the dress is bloodied. And it seems to me that that begins a whole kind of metaphor of the female body becoming a metaphor for the stage itself because her, her you know, she opens up these curtains and curtains of course have stood for the labia for centuries. And these days we have the vulgar phrase beef curtains to describe the labia of women. I can't say I've um, ever heard that one. Yes. Uh, look it up in urban dictionary. <laughs> see Lots of examples. Um, pretty disgusting. But anyway, so you have her opening her coat before she's even inside so that we can see the bloody dress, which, um, you know, given that it's bloodied from the waist down, I think is highly suggestive. <laughs> We're going to get some more curtains coming up here in a moment because before she can go into his main room, she tells him to close up the curtains. So I don't know if we're necessarily backstage, but that's kind of what it feels like. She's not having him open the curtains now, like she just opened her dress, but she's having him close the curtains so they can have this private conversation. Johnny, you love me. Say that you love me. You do love me, don't you? I think he's dead. I'm sure he's dead. I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. Who's dead? My husband. We had a terrible quarrel about you. Oh, he was vile. You know the sort of things he can say. He started to hit me. I grabbed something. I was out of my mind with fear. Oh, what am I to do? Marlena Dietrich's performance in this I find to be very interesting. Just the way that she she speaks really fast. And almost all the time, she seems to be looking up for some reason. And I'm not sure if that's just like kind of a lighting thing. Like she was the master of lighting when it came to lighting herself. But she is always, it seems like, looking up. And just she lays out this whole thing about how she killed her husband and how Johnny needs to go to her house and pick up a dress for her. At first, she, uh, Johnny is, of course, very consoling and talking about how you know the show must go on. He doesn't use that phrase, but he does talk about you know how she has to go to the theater where she's slated to be that night and go on as if nothing has ever happened. And he starts to basically give her kind of stage direction. It's just like you know, you must go on tonight. You got to, as if nothing had happened. Nothing has happened. You drove straight to the theater, do you understand? Straight to the theater. You haven't been home at all. Now get that into your head. 
they seem to be, and just with the pace of the dialogue and what they're saying, it feels like they're playing this really super melodramatic scene. If that had played on the stage, I think people probably would have been like, well, this isn't very convincing at all. But that it's in a flashback, you kind of start to cut them a little bit of slack. It's interesting that you said that he's, it's like he's directing her because, I mean, I think there's a whole sense in which, of course, it, it ties in with the false the false flashback with who's telling the story that there is this seemingly it's setting it up as the man as the authority the man in control and he will be way out of control by the end of the movie and the women somehow take center you know a a central place in, in the movie so i think all those things kind of suggest a setting up of the male male authority only to undercut it and to cut it um that were by the end of the movie. He goes over to Charlotte Inwood's house. I found it uh, last night when I was re-watching the film. When he goes up to the door, there's this carnival music that seems to be playing, or at least it sounds kind of like, I don't know, like calliope music that's playing. And it seems to be diegetic, so somewhere on the street this music is playing. So it almost sets up the garden party that will be later on in the film where it is more of a carnival setting. And he goes into the door, opens it up, and it's there's this great way that they shoot it so that the camera follows him in, and he kind of pretends to close the door behind him, but I don't think he even touches a doorknob whatsoever. And then again, we're back to the stairs, where we follow him going up this staircase to Charlotte's room. And I love the way that we kind of crane up, and we're following him along, and just the bars of the uh, stairwell are kind of framing him as if, you know, he's going to be behind bars very soon. Right, being framed. (laughs) And we go into her room with him and he gets to see the scene, as it were, the the tableau of the murder scene. And uh, it's great. There's a, a poker that's laying there. There's the body that's laying there. And more than the body, though, and I don't know if you guys could make this out, but there are these paintings that are on uh, the, the, the closet door. And I was trying to figure out what those images are because they seem to be more prominent in the shot than the body does. Yeah, I couldn't hmm. really figure it out. Could you, Philip? No, no I, I didn't notice them. Even on the DVD, it's just not clear enough for me to make out what, what those were. But to me, and, and I could be completely wrong, but to me, those took prominence more than the body did. And I love this little interplay that we have then with uh, Jonathan going over to the door and opening it up, trying to get get the dress out of the closet, and he has to move the dead body. And we don't see the dead body after that at all. We just see him kind of pulling on this door until eventually we assume the body moves. And and uh, Jonathan takes no care at all when he gets Charlotte's dress. I mean, he's just completely, you know, just takes it and wads it up. And I'm like, come on, dude, she's going to have to iron that now when you get to the theater. You could have at least put it over your <laughs> arm. But, but yeah, then he gets the bright idea. He's going to mess up the room, make it look like a robbery. He goes through everything. We get this, this uh, shot as he's 
like messing up all of the papers that are on the desk. He holds up this photo and it's a picture of him as part of this chorus line. And he's the one who's to the left of Charlotte in this photo or at her left, I should say. And, you know, we get a little bit of a hold on that before, oops, the maid is here. And then he has to run away. Well, you hear the scream. You hear the scream and he, and he takes off out of there, descending those stairs as fast as he possibly can. Because a lot of playing with sound. This is the moment where he goes back, goes to speak with her. Oh, yeah. This is the the weirdest shot of the film for me is when he and Charlotte are back together. And we've got this kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say typical film noir framing, but we have this framing where he's in the background looking out the window, kind of seeing if if the coast is clear kind of thing. We have Charlotte in front, and she's facing us. She's closer to the camera. And if she was really close, I guess they would use a diopter. But in this film, for some reason, it's a, it's a process shot where she seems... Yeah, that's really strange. <laughs> it is bizarre. And I'm like, why would they have done that? Because it really calls attention to itself. It's strange because, you know, with Hitchcock, you think... Orson Welles, about 10 years ago, pulled, you know, 1940, pulled it off really well. And to see this 10 years later with, and Hitchcock doing it so strangely, like, I, I'm not sure why. I've never seen a shot like that. It's very, very strange. And it, it's not like they couldn't have done that on the stage. You know, they could, they could have filmed that, you know, live, as it were, rather than doing a process shot. So for me, it's just like, okay, this is... It draws so much attention to itself that I'm just like, this must mean something, you know, <laughs> because Hitchcock isn't the kind of person to just like do something weird as a throwaway. He always seems to have a plan in place. So for some reason, we are really seeing Jonathan in the background and her up close in this almost like weird halo to her. And I was like, OK, maybe calling attention to itself as 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 fabricated as. You know, something's not right. Something's not real here. I don't know. And it again, we're back at his flat. And now it's time. You know, the, I, I said earlier, as far as him drawing the curtains and everything and them feeling like they're maybe backstage, because now she is getting into costume. She's doing her makeup and she's about to go out and kind of give this performance as far as I don't know that my husband is dead. So she's going to have to to pretend that everything is okay in her world. And I found that to be kind of interesting too, that we really get this painstaking thing of the makeup and the costume and all of this. And we've already had John give Jonathan, give her some stage direction after she leaves. Oh man, I, I love this whole part. After she leaves, he starts to think about that. Maid right, having there's like seen a flashback in a flashback. And he goes through this whole sequence of events in his own head where it's he's superimposed on these ideas that he's having. And we see the whole process of these cops talking to the maid and then the cops looking up uh, in the phone book to him. And he's about to reach for the phone and the phone rings. And it is just so great. I love that sequence. And eventually he ends up calling Eve and speaks to Eve's mother, who says that she's over at RADA. 
And when he gets downstairs, the cops are at his door, and he has this great moment of the cops trying to get into his car. And I'm surprised, you know, I guess because the cops in London don't carry guns, you know, if this was law and order, they would have been shooting out the windows. But (laughs) as it was, they're just banging on it, and they managed to bang this kind of spider web of uh, a break into the safety glass. And that's what kind of marks his car for later when they find him. Can I just point out that he does point at this thing on the, on the window that says safety glass. And obviously that's relating to safety curtain. And they, you know, he's like thinking they can't get in. And they of course puncture the window and almost get in. And I think it's a kind of prefiguring of what's going to happen to him at the end where the safety curtain descends, but I'm giving away the plot. I should point out too, that he does take Charlotte's bloodstained dress with him rather than throwing it in the fire. She is under the assumption that he's going to destroy it, but he takes it with him and he runs away to Rada to find Jane Wyman, Eve on stage and interrupts the performance. And again, there's more, um, there's more stairs in Rada. We've got a lot of backstage stuff going on. Eventually he comes out on stage and breaks the scene that Eve is performing. And I also found it interesting, too, that she has a kind of, um, she doesn't have any part of a costume on other than this kind of hoop skirt that just hangs from her waist all the way down. And that seems to be the only bit of costume that she has. Oh, could I say one thing about what what her one line is when she is on stage? Something like, that's cool, Father. If everyone were of your mind, marriage would be impossible. And given the whole family thing that's going on, (laughs) the family is um, broken up, given other things, um, which we'll maybe get into later. I think that's a highly significant line that's generally been overlooked. What was interesting about the film was just the fact that it's it's about actors and acting. And Mm -hmm. Hitchcock is kind of, I think, infamous for treating actors as sheep, or at least that's what I've heard, that he had this kind of, you know, uh, he treated actors, you know, very differently. And the fact that here's a movie about acting and the, the, that teacher who's like, you know, oh, you think acting is all fun and games. You think it's just, I'm curious, like what if Hitchcock, you know, uh, what he really thought of acting, you know, of actors, like did he think deeply of them or did he just treat them as <laughs> sheep? Or I mean, it just made me wonder about Hitchcock really. I mean, different actors say different things about the way that Hitchcock um, related to them and, and, you know, often very complimentary things. So I think that, um, you know, this remark about cattle has gained a kind of outsized importance and is not really, doesn't really apply in many, many instances. But I do think it raises an interesting issue of, you know, what Hitchcock thought about the theater as medium and how he uses the theater as medium um, in relation to the film as medium. And I think that part that's part of what Stage Fright is all about and why it's so fascinating. We get back into the car, we catch up with the narrative, and Jonathan is concerned that by telling this story, or however this story has come to us, because again, it's, it feels like it, Jonathan was our source of truth on this, uh, <laughs> truth in quotes, um, and he has kind of let the cat out of the bag as far as his desire and relationship with Charlotte Inwood, and 
kind of already has sealed his doom a little bit because Eve is very into him, but he has basically told her, no, I'm really into Charlotte. So she has this line about how she wishes, wishes that she had taken up second fiddle. And it's interesting to me that later on, we'll find out that Jonathan isn't in the same position that he would like to be in because he is essentially being cuckolded by Charlotte because there's another man in the picture that wasn't her husband. It was this guy, Freddie, who we'll meet in a little bit. But yeah, we're now caught up with the the narrative. We are done with the flashback, moving on and going to this cottage, uh, which is outside of London, where Eve's father is. And we've got Alistair Sim playing her father, the Commodore. Or actually, I think his name might just be Commodore, or they just refer to him as Commodore all the time. He steals the movie from me. I think he's... <laughs> I mean, Marlene Dietrich is very good, but I think Alistair just... Is wonderful, so good in this movie. It's it's, it's interesting though because it, it, apparently, at least according to one source, Hitchcock was driven crazy by his mugging, um, so, <laughs> <laughs> and you can kind of see that too. You know, I mean, he clearly wants to steal show and in some ways does, um, but it was apparently did not please Hitchcock for what but that's worth. But wasn't that also the case with Marlon Dietrich? Wasn't she like? really mugging <laughs> i mean she was aware of the camera yeah the but he didn't he didn't mind that he just let her oh. have her own way um <laughs> she just guess, kind of took, took control but he he was fine with that which is unusual for hitchcock yeah there are reports that she really didn't take his direction that he allowed her to direct herself basically allowed her to take over the lighting and everything that it took to get her image up on stage because i think after a while when you were getting marlene Dietrich, you were getting the whole package of her experience and how she could make herself look just absolutely radiant. And I think that he was okay with that. He wanted that Sternberg kind of touch to her and her performance. Oh, yeah. It, right. absolutely, it absolutely fits the character. I mean, if Jane Wyman was like that, it would have totally ruined the film <laughs> if she was, you know, just like, you know, completely aware of the camera and always controlling the lights and all that, it would have not been good at all. Yeah, and Charlotte is so aware of her image, especially later on when we see her with their, her veil and the smoke and everything. It's just like these beautiful, beautiful shots of her where just she is kind of in her own movie that's just running parallel to this Alfred Hitchcock movie. Alistair Sim, I want to take a moment here to point out uh, or to give a shout out to his sweater, his amazing <laughs> sweater that he's wearing. Did he wipe his food on? <laughs> the the neck is all stretched out and stuff. I'm like, man, you look like you escaped from Wham in the future and you traveled back in time. He, his character, he's a classic Hitchcock character in many ways because he's one of my favorite Hitchcock films is Shadow of a Doubt. And <laughs> there are two characters in that film who are constantly toying with the concept of murder, how you would murder someone. You know, Hitchcock loves that in his films. He always loves to, to have characters, you know, just play around with the concept of how would you kill someone? How would you get away with it? And all this, you know, which of course is part of the plot in many ways. And that character, I think in other films as well, helps, you know, the main character sort of the, the issue at hand. But it's like his character, of course, he knows all about 
murder, how to deal with murders, because he tells the char- main character, you know, I got some murder stories if you want to read them, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is just, you know, like, oh, yeah, that's Hitchcock, you know, typical. <laughs> you know, I love that kind of dark humor. It's all in all of his films. And I think later Jane Wyman talks about that as well, uh, about confronting the ugly side of, you know, <laughs> life. <laughs> Yeah, she definitely seems to have had her, uh, this experience kind of strips those blinders off of her a little bit, I think, because she does seem to be, I don't want to say naive, but she seems innocent at the beginning of the film, and she definitely learns a life lesson as she goes throughout this experience. And Alistair Sim, the Commodore, he seems to be the most aware of everything going on in this. He the way that we see him um, when we finally get into the cottage, we see Jonathan who's sleeping, sitting up in this chair. And I'm thinking that he's kind of the, I don't know if he's the audience or what kind of role that he's playing, but we get this dialogue going on between Eve and the Commodore and the Commodore is wearing this accordion. And sometimes Rather than talking to her, he actually provides music cues, basically, to set the stage. Do you think I behave like a fool? On the whole, I think so. I think your boyfriend has behaved like a fool. I have a strong premonition that I'm going to behave like a fool. It's infectious. Do you mean you're going to help him? Why not? He's a friend of yours, isn't he? Oh, yes. I see. More than a friend, eh? When I'm with him, I get a feeling in here that... that sort of... Yes, yes, yes. We'll we'll go into the symptoms later. Meanwhile, I take it you're either keen on him or still hungry. I'm in love with him. You've roped him, but he's not yet broken to harness. Is that it? I wish Charlotte Inwood was in Oh, do you? Oh, I've seen her on the stage. She'd have made me laugh. I hadn't been strictly in my guard. Well, she couldn't make me laugh. Off her on the stage. I can't bear to sit by and see what she's doing to Jonathan. She's like an evil spirit. Just look at him. Ruined and by a woman. Hmm? Now you want me to take the, the ruins for a little cruise. Hmm? Well, is that it? Well, I thought you could take him across the channel or to the Irish coast, and he could hide out a bit. Well, the journey sounds attractive, but less attractive to help a suspected murderer to escape. And he talks a lot about, um, you know, oh, um, taking a part in this melodramatic play, he says later on. And and he does uh, try to pass himself off like he's more of a smuggler than this kind of harmless old man that he has become. So he's trying to play a role of uh, this smuggler of brandy and he's this outlaw and all this kind of stuff when really he just is kind of this goofy old man but like i said he does seem to be very knowing of everything like he looks at the way that eve looks at jonathan and immediately is like oh i see he's more than a friend and I, i really appreciate that about him he brings this kind of i don't want to say reality to the proceedings but he is the our the easiest person to relate to because he wears it all on his sleeve he gives a great line, too, later on where he talks about, if there's one thing I can't bear, it's insincerity. Mm. And he looks at that dress, and it's that scene that you're talking about, Tanya, where he holds up the dress to himself as if he were going to put it on, as if it were this costume for him, and gets to see the blood stain on there at that point. And he's the one who realizes that the blood has been smeared on there. So something is definitely 
weird about Jonathan's story, but at this point in the film, we think that it's strange about Charlotte's story, that she is setting things up and that she is the one who is masterminding and, and manipulating everything. Right, because he's framed, he's framing her for the murder, as it turns out. Um, I, I do want to point out one thing about the costuming in that scene, um, and that is that Jane Wyman is wearing a skirt or culottes that have three big X's down the phone in down the front. Did you notice that? I did not notice that. Because nice. that really contrasts quite beautifully with the bloody white dress and bloody white skirt. So she's, you know, her curtains are closed and sewn up. Um, whereas when Marlena Dietrich first appears, um, her curtains open right away to, to the sight of a bloody skirt. Seems like Charlotte would be opening her curtains much more often than Eve would. Definitely. We'll get to that. <laughs> Eve's a good girl. Eve's a good yeah, girl. She's virginal, um, for sure. So after some discussion, they decide that, um, well, actually, I think the Commodore kind of refuses to be a part of this, but he knows that his daughter is going to go through with it anyway, because she wakes up a little bit earlier than he does, and when she goes out to the car to um, go back down to London, there's a note on there about, be careful of Charlotte and what she's dangerous. The Commodore is aware that Eve has a mind of her own, so she's going to take part in this. And she tries to get to the murder scene, and of course it is a mob outside of all these people trying to get in or trying to see what's going on. You know, the typical, everybody's uh, kind of a fan of the macabre. So she sees a, a policeman, one of the policemen we've seen in Jonathan's uh, flashback and we see a policeman coming out of the scene and she follows him to this local pub and she braces herself before she goes in. It's like, again, she is about to go on stage. She then takes this role of a young woman who is overcome by the news of the murder and needs to go into this pub to get a spot of brandy. And there's this great part in here where she goes in and she takes a seat after she orders her brandy and she's trying to get the attention of this man who will find out to be very soon is, is detective Smith. And there's another man in there, this guy, I don't know how you would best describe him to me. kind of looks, like a turtle without a shell he's got these big round glasses and this kind of largish nose and not too much chin and he keeps trying to help her out does he resemble hitchcock just a little bit uh, just a little bit yeah <laughs> yeah i would say so i would say if you put those glasses on hitchcock he might look a little bit like that yes and the hat yeah <laughs> yes and i love that she takes his seat so she again becomes, even though she's an actress and she's acting this role, she's kind of the member of the, the audience because she's there watching and we get all these cuts back to the bar and what's going on with that. And we hear people telling stories and jokes and all this stuff. Eventually she does catch the eye of Smith and he does come over and join her. And we, <laughs> we have this great line. There's some nice dialogue in here. We have this great line about, um, look, would you feel less uneasy if I sat with you? Or more uneasy? Perhaps you're allergic to strange men, too. No, I love strange men. I mean, I'm very fond of them. Smith and Eve sit at this table, and they both now become an audience. And there's a great part in here where uh, Charlotte Inwood's maid 
comes back in again the same maid that we saw in the flashback that we didn't see very much of her Nellie Good and she starts talking about I'm not saying a word to the reporters not a word after all who discovered the body I'll be a star witness at that trial and my story ought to be worth something no intention of giving it away. You're quite a celebrity, you lucky girl. I'll have to buy the Daily Mirror tomorrow. And I love that uh, Smith starts to critique her performance. Isn't she talking too much? Too much, too loud, too everything. Although she starts it. She says, isn't she talking too much? And he says, yes, and too loud. And in this discussion between Smith and Eve... They are taking on roles almost immediately. There's this whole thing where he says, "Suppose I'm a librarian," and she's like, "No, you're you're um, you're pretending to be a librarian." And then she admits to being an actress, um, and does talk about how she uh, played the. Um, she hasn't had very many roles, but she did play the uh, fourth of the seven deadly sins. And I looked up the seven deadly sins, and unfortunately, I, I found so many different lists of sins. There are a lot of lists, but I, I think that the, the fourth, the fourth one generally is seen to be envy, though it's not, it's not consistent. Yeah, yeah. I was really hoping for a definitive yeah. list of the seven deadly sins. There are seven deadly sins, Captain: gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath. Pride, lust, and envy. But envy makes sense, especially when it comes to what Charlotte has versus what she has. And we get this really kind of a weird dissolve out when they leave the bar. That's another moment where it really kind of the filmmaking draws attention to itself for just strange reasons. And I couldn't figure out again what was going on at this point. I was just like, all right, are we just, is this where the curtain's coming down and we're about to enter into a new act or something? But it was just this kind of a strange dissolve to get them out of there. Uh, it's just 1950 filmmaking. I don't think there was anything that Hitchcock was trying to, you know, convey in that dissolve. <laughs> Smith finally properly introduces himself to her, which comes up here very quickly. He gives her his business card and his name ends up being Wilfred O. Smith. And she ends up calling him Ordinary Smith. So, like, the O stands for Ordinary. And one of the things in all the reading that I've done that nobody seemed to point out was this whole idea of Hitchcock liking to have people with O as a middle initial. Yeah, like Roger Thornhill. Yes, exactly. And to me, it always seemed to be kind of a, a little dig at his former producer who was his producer up until i can't remember if it was this film or the film before but david o selznick hitchcock was not a big fan of david o selznick <laughs> so hmm. i always wondered if that was kind of a, a little dig at david o selznick and that the o stands for nothing and maybe that selznick stands for nothing but i don't know if that's just you know, I, I'm sure it can't be my theory. I'm sure other people have written about this, but when it comes to stage fright, nobody seemed to point that out. Yeah, and and also, I mean, just on, a, on another level that we professors talk about, <laughs> the O um, as like you know at the heart of identity, and it seems to me that's what this film about theater is about. And you mentioned the carnival aspect of it, you know, and the shifting of identities, um, moving in and out of gender roles and other 
class roles and so on. So, oh, I, I think it is a dig at Selznick. I really do believe that. But I really also believe it's, um, it points to a preoccupation of Hitchcock's as well. And so we almost immediately get this thing where Eve is setting herself up. We have her get this idea that she wants to become Charlotte Inwood's maid and get in there and be able to observe Charlotte you know, right up close. And she invites uh, Ordinary Smith over for tea and then goes out and tries to set up this whole thing with her being this maid and it already is causing friction as far as the timeline. And is she going to be able to get back in time? And, um, we have a lot of these close calls, like so much of this film from probably most of the second act would be her avoiding the police and avoiding being caught or being seen while she's playing one role when she should be playing another role, you know, is she Eve the good girl or is she this uh, nefarious maid character that we're going to be introduced to Doris pretty soon. And there's a lot of this kind of, you know, doubling and who knows that she's playing this role, who should see her in which role because Smith should never see her as the maid. She, he should only see her as Eve and Charlotte really shouldn't see her as Eve. She should only see her as, the maid and we get a lot of these you know close call moments which i know some critics of the films were saying that just weren't close enough i suppose that they didn't like how easily she skated from one to another but i found it to be rather exhilarating as i was watching this Uh, especially there are moments where you know it's like charlotte wants eve to show the police out and she's and the police is like no no we'll take care of it ourselves you know we know the way out so I don't know. It worked for me. But before we even get to that, we have, we're back at the pub and we've got the camera moving through the patrons at the pub and then eventually finding Eve again at back at that bench seat with Nellie now, Nellie Good, the maid. And Nellie, talking about class like you just were, Tanya, Nellie is definitely of a different class. And this is one of those things that Hitchcock played up a lot, when, it, especially when it came to his British films, was this idea of class and who is, is in what cast, as it were. And Nellie is very, very, very suspicious of Eve for good reasons. (laughs) And Eve begins to talk again. She's playing this other role. Now she starts to talk about how she's a reporter and wants to get in and be able to observe Charlotte and be able to write this story and is trying to play upon the uh, solidarity, the, the sisterhood, because, you know, it's really tough for female reporters. So, Nellie, can't you cut me a break and say that I'm your cousin and introduce me? And Nellie is like, sure, sure, I can for 25 pounds or whatever price that she wants. So she begins this kind of thing of of playing on her being this lower class and wanting to sponge off the upper class a little bit. Come on, you guys have money. let's, Let's see a little bit of it before I put my job in jeopardy. And I do like the line where Nellie says, have you, you know, or where Eve says, I've done a bit of acting. And then Nellie comes back with character acting. And so it's like already questioning if she's a good enough actress to be taking on this role as the maid. The character Nellie, she is just so strange when I, at least for me, when I see like, I, I don't, you don't usually see that kind of female character in movies. She's so kind of nasty and, you know, her mannerisms and just the way she sits and, and smokes and just, 
it's very, it's a, she's a very peculiar character. It's interesting because the film, you know, this was, of course, written by Alma, Hitchcock's wife. And there are many female characters on screen in this film. And you can easily, I think you can tell definitely that Hitchcock's wife had a big, you know, hand in the writing here. And I'm definitely curious about her contributions to this film and if they, if she played a real big part in the film and the themes. Yeah, I really wanted to find, because this was based on a novel called Man Running uh, by Selwyn Jepson. And I tried like crazy to find that novel, but I have to say that right now it is way overpriced. There's even an American release of it, Outrun the Constable. And whether it was the one title or the other title, it was too pricey for me. So I, I would have felt bad spending that patron patreon money uh on this book because it was just way too much to do and again i don't know how similar to the original story it was yeah i mean there's a lot of here which feels like oh hitchcock added that and that's yeah and the, the only thing you can read it on wikipedia actually is you can see the differences between the film and the novel and the only thing it says is um it's the identity of the murderer that's the difference um uh, where it's this character, Freddie Williams, is the murderer in the book, actually. Freddie was the ki- was the one. Oh, okay. Yes, I mean, I thought Jonathan, and you know, was innocent first time I saw it, definitely. And I thought maybe it was going to be the the boyfriend of um, Charlotte, maybe, or maybe Charlotte was just the killer. But then no, it, <laughs> Hitchcock completely, you know, fools fools us. Yeah, which of course was really interesting. I thought. Yeah, I mean, I think Alma had Alma Revel had a lot to do with with Hitchcock's films all through his career. But I also think that Hitchcock himself was extremely interested in women, and they play a huge role in just about all of his films. There are only, I think, a couple of exceptions. She eventually does convince Nellie to allow her to take on this role. Talking about vaginal symbolism here, the way that Nellie holds her purse under the table and slides this money into it. I'm just like, okay, yeah, calling Dr. Freud. Purses in Hitchcock, man. Marnie, suspicion, always suggesting female genitalia. Even though Nellie is lower class, she is one of the more observant characters. She manages to get the money and everything. And she also even says to Eva at one point, I saw you here yesterday. You're sitting at this very spot and talking to a policeman. And it's like, Eve is really kind of taken aback by that. It's like, how dare Nellie actually recognize me and recognize that the other person was a policeman? But even though, yeah, once she produces the green or whatever the color uh, money was in England at the time, uh, Nellie does finally oblige her. And we get another scene of play acting coming up here where Eve is putting on this costume and uh, <laughs> doing this whole thing, pinning her hair back, wearing this kind of hat that is very reminiscent of Nellie's putting on these huge glasses that her mother has. Her mother calls them reading glasses. I'm just like, man, those are not reading glasses. <laughs> if you need to read with those things, I mean, they're like Mr. Magoo type glasses. <laughs> and then her trying to smoke and being one of the most unconvincing smokers I've seen in a long time as well. As opposed to Charlotte, who smokes very well, even under her veils. <laughs> Yeah, I think this movie today would be rated X for smoking. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a very cute scene. I, but, you know, she dresses exactly like Nellie. And I thought, 
but she can't do that. She can't look exactly like Nelly because <laughs> I was that I thought was confusing. It's like, wait, is she trying to be Nelly now, or is she? <laughs> I it, it I'm glad. I, of course, she doesn't go with that disguise completely, but. Yeah, that was a little. <laughs> it's very funny, I must say. And I do like how she can't even convince her mother that it's her. Like she goes outside and rings the bell, and when her mother comes in, she's just like, "Oh, there's my glasses." Oh, that's, I that's, know, that's, but who? Who would? <laughs> you know, it's like Superman putting on a pair of glasses, and then nobody, Clark Kent putting on a pair of glasses, yeah. and nobody recognizes him anymore. That, that is <laughs> that is the funniest moment in the film. <laughs> So she goes out and she's about to enter into Charlotte's house now. She's outside and she's rehearsing and she's out there telling herself her name and everything. And this is where we get the Hitchcock cameo of him walking past and looking back at her like she's this strange bird on the on the street because she's just there saying, I'm Doris Dimsdale. Yeah, this is the moment that I was talking about earlier as far as Eve as Doris going into the house, being called up to the second floor, retracing those steps that we saw Jonathan talking about earlier. So we, again, were led to believe that Jonathan's narration or this flashback was 100% truthful because everything that we've seen in the flashback is exactly that same way when it comes to the rest of the film. So we get her going up there and um, meeting this guy, Freddie, uh, who is really Charlotte's lover. And, and as you were saying, Philip, he's the guy who was the murderer in the book. But we don't get a whole lot of Freddie in here. We get a lot of Freddie in this scene, but we don't get very much Freddie the rest of the film. I think that was yeah. probably maybe a major alteration from the book. He, might, he probably was a bigger character since he's the killer in the book. I was very confused. When I saw that the actor, you know, who plays Freddy, I was like, is that Claude Rains? Because he looked a lot like Claude Rains. Am I the only one who thought? He did. Yeah, no. I didn't think so, but okay, well, <laughs> I won't discount your opinion. Okay. But I love the camera work here because we see that as well in the, in the pub, the subjective camera work. You know, we just see, see, we see her looking at the Everything and the camera is, you know, the fluid camera work is goes into the room and it's all her perspective. It's and it's great, you know, uh, just great filmmaking. Yeah, there's so many moments where we're just going between Freddie and Charlotte, and Charlotte is in one room and Freddie's in the other room, and they're having a conversation back and forth between them. So we get a lot of just a shot of Freddie and a shot of Charlotte, and Charlotte is this is the moment I was talking about earlier where she has the black veil and she's smoking under it, and she's trying to convince the person who's fitting the the black dress on to uh, be able to cut it down a little bit low, show show off the girls a little bit. Let's get some. Clear in this dress here because you know charlotte's much too pretty to not have that and she really wants to make this a very striking morning dress rather than just a morning dress and i love that bit and i love how she's uh even at one point when eve hands her a, a robe and it's black she's like oh good catch you know <laughs> like i'm supposed to be in mourning i forgot <laughs> now i i had a little bit of trouble every once in a while understanding Marlena Dietrich. I don't know if it was the accent or just you know the the miking or whatever. But it, does she keep screwing up Doris's name now? Does she call her a she whole bunch of other names? I mean, that's the whole point. I think she calls her Phyllis. She calls her Nancy, and she calls her Mavis. That's how important this Doris character is to her, I suppose. Although later she will call her Eve. And again, we have. Eve slash Doris slash Nancy slash Mavis slash Phyllis. <laughs> we have 
her being directed by Charlotte, which I found to be interesting because uh, Eve reads a note to Charlotte and Charlotte is just like, no, don't read it so loud. Not so loud, yeah. (laughs) And then, you know, take off your hat. It's like she's redressing her and she's giving her lines now, which I found to be Hmm. great. (laughs) Yeah, I thought of that, but yeah. She gives her a very important line. She tells her, okay, the police are here, you go into the other room, mm-hmm. and when I cough, you need to tell me that the doctors are here. So oh, that's it's this great, whole, yeah. Go off stage now, and wait for the cue, and then when you do, then read this line to me, and then we'll be able to move on with it. And it's shot like Charlotte, or like, like Eve is standing in the wings, too. When you talk about her dressing up, uh, you know, redressing uh, Eve, and I, and I keep thinking about Vertigo, you know, that because, you know, Vertigo is about with people have interpreted Vertigo as being Hitchcock's, you know, obsession with the perfect woman or something like that. The perfect blonde or something like that. And here's like he's like this is almost like I don't know if it was Elma who wrote Vertigo, the adaptation. But this is like, no, like, no, no. OK, this is almost like the I don't know, reverse maybe of Vertigo. <laughs> almost thought trying to be a different kind of looking woman and you know it's mm, it's very yeah. interesting effort comparing to later Hitchcock films when we see Charlotte being questioned by the police she's sitting on this what would it be like a chaise or just this big lounge there yeah she can't be bothered to stand up she can't be bothered really to even sit up she's playing again playing this role she's playing the laziest gal in town exactly exactly it's the same darn lounge that we're going to see when she's on stage later on it's just like wow all the world's a stage for charlotte oh yeah yeah she is now in her perfect uh, outfit she gives the cue and at one point i think freddie even says like that's your cue girl yeah and this is when we have the whole like the police showing themselves out and this whole thing of now Eve having to rush home because Smith is going to be there for tea. And when she gets there, her father is there. And I think he even has her put on a different outfit. He gives her a coat to put over her outfit. So again, like this whole stage setting and the Commodore is, is really the best stage manager she can have because he's there, you know, helping out with all this kind of stuff. (laughs) And there's even one part later on where he starts feeding her lines of things or like kind of, drawing up scenarios, but... Call yourself an actress. There's your big scene if you have the pluck to take it. You have the law on your arm, all you have to do is to rush in there and shout, stop. That woman is a murderess. And then she'll say, how dare you? And he'll say, I'll dare and dare again. What about the bloodstained dress, eh, Miss Charlotte Inwood? And then she'll say... Please, this is serious, Father. So we have this whole tea scene going on, and all the protagonists are there we've got ordinary smith eve her mother and commodore all there and all these just little things that are happening in this scene are great i love when the commodore gives the mom a bottle of brandy and then when the mom finds out that the uh that smith is a policeman the way that she just tries to put the brandy you know like get this out of the room because this is a bootleg bottle of brandy you know, you were talking, uh, Philip, about Vertigo, and there was one uh, moment around here that it kind of cracked me up because we get this shot of Jane Wyman's the back of her head oh. for quite a while. There's nothing as interesting as that swirl that we have on the back of um, Kim Novak's head or anything, but 
Hitchcock was always one for showing the back of a woman's head and her hair for the longest time. Hmm. I, I don't know, because I thought of what's just the fact that he didn't want to do another camera setup, maybe? I didn't think about the vertigo that he just said, that he didn't, you know, so that's why we only see the back of her head. But again, I I don't know, it's, now you say it, yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's a strange shot, actually. Here's where we're introduced to Smith being a piano player, and I, I do like this quite a bit because... Now, after we see him playing piano, and she's very, very encouraging, Eve is very encouraging of him sitting down and playing piano. After that, now, anytime we hear a piano, it's going to be a reminder of Smith. And we do get a few moments later on in the film where the piano comes back very strongly. It just that it becomes like their song, their love song. And I do like this, too, because I forgot that Johnny, uh, Jonathan, is in the house, and he suddenly gets transformed via dialogue from a man to a dog because <laughs> Johnny has run away or I'm sorry, John, Jonathan is not in the house. They're talking about him. Uh, he was at the cottage and then after they went on a boat ride and Jonathan got sick, he ended up running away. So they end up talking about him as if he were a dog who had run away. And he is. And he's a mad dog as it turns out. <laughs> There's this great thing, too, where they keep trying to keep things from the mom, but the mom is a little too smart for anything. Like, Or there's just like some very funny lines in here, especially when she gets introduced to Smith and she's like, hmm, Smith, that's a very familiar name. She calls him Smith and says, I did get it right, finally, didn't I? I do like the line that Smith gives about um, the father, where he's like, I want to get to know your father better. Not professionally, I mean. It's like, is Smith already on the on the know that uh, the Commodore isn't 100% legal? Yeah, you know, Hitchcock, he was known as the master of suspense, but he was great with comedy as well. And, and of course, you know, uh, romance. And there's suspense here, but it's more playful than anything. It's not until the very end when it becomes really, really dangerous, if you will. So, yeah, otherwise, it's those moments that I was talking about of, of Eve being seen in the right places at the right time. You know, we've got, after this, we've got Eve running to the theater now because she's going to be dressing Charlotte for a performance. It's the first of uh, a couple musical numbers. And, of course, we see Eve is wearing Nellie's gown and has her name on it. So I found that to be interesting, too, that she's uh, still assuming another person here. Commodore does show up, and Jonathan shows up as well. And Jonathan is up inside of Charlotte's dressing room. And there's a great bit here where Commodore and Eve are talking. You're giving a very good show, a very good show indeed. But you have no audience. But you're my audience. We should give me a little applause now and then. Every line, it feels like, or at least every other line, feels like it has theatricality embedded in it. And I really, that's one of the things I appreciate about the dialogue in this film. And everybody is playing a role for somebody else. And even to the point where we've got this great thing about somebody saying that the theater is the last place where Johnny would want to be seen, which is, again, another little uh, uh, nice line about the, the end of his life later on in the film. Well, I think, I think Eve at one point says, uh, Charlotte at one point says, it's the scene of the crime the murderer returns to, not the theater. And the only murderer here is the orchestra leader. And Charlotte tells her to stop acting. And there's 
just a ton of, of uh, looking in this scene. This seemed to be the, the moment that I really caught all of the glancing that's going on as far as Eve looking at Johnny out in the audience and then looking at Charlotte and looking for the police and just like constantly going back and forth between all of these people. And again, we have that tension of Eve cannot be seen by the police, or at least by Smith in this capacity that she's playing as this dresser now, as this servant to Charlotte. And we get a little bit of that too when uh, Jonathan, she is outside of the door and gets to hear this conversation between Jonathan and Charlotte. And eventually, um, and it, it, it sheds a little bit more light on things, but it, it keeps us more in line too with the false flashback, I have to say. But then she manages to um, help Jonathan escape because she still feels that he's innocent. So she, again, puts on this big act. And, God, she does. She throws one of the worst feints that I've ever seen. But <laughs> it was pretty – I mean, it's appropriate for the role, I suppose. Oh, and I do like um, Charlotte dressing behind the curtain. Uh, again, we have that curtain idea as she's – kind of sticking your head out and, and uh, talking to um, Jonathan as well. And we get more of Freddie, but mostly just via dialogue when she talks about how Freddie's going to get Jonathan out of town. This is also another great line here because Jonathan says that he is at the theater. There are so many people there that he could only get standing room only. And it's a nice kind of a nod to the whole idea of him being squeezed out and Freddie taking over as Charlotte's lover now. And he's just kind of reduced to somebody who can't even get a ticket for the performance. You know, he's in pretty soon. He won't even be allowed in the theater. Pretty soon he'll be out the door. And so he gets uh, a little miffed at her and tells her that he didn't destroy the dress and that he is really the one that's in charge, that he's the one with the power, even though he did destroy the dress. And he even says, so long as I have that dress, I'm the one who decides how long this show will run. And everything else. Did you guys find it peculiar that Eve is like eavesdropping at this point and she hears how awful Johnny is and or Jonathan rather and it doesn't seem to shake her at all? Did did you find that strange or I found it a little strange, but I think it makes this whole next set stuff a lot easier for her. Because this is the other moment, this is the other stuff that bothered a lot of people about the film i think was that eve to put it in the words of the commodore she switches horses midstream she knows that now she knows like well she knows that jonathan is in love with charlotte she knows that he's a real shit and treats her terribly and then she has this opportunity to be with ordinary smith but yeah i think that's what bothered a lot of people is that she changes her mind in the middle of the film and it's like well Really, would you want to be with Jonathan after you know how terrible he is? I mean, but he almost kind of, I mean, he, he suggests that he's in complicity with Charlotte and when he's talking to Charlotte. So it isn't so much the switching horses in midstream per se, but it's like at that point, she realizes that he's, she ought to realize that he's much more involved in the murder than he claimed, but she doesn't. I thought that was strange anyways. 
eventually Jonathan does come to the house is what I was thinking of earlier. And he's going to stay there for a little bit. And I do like the whole idea of everyone giving him uh, a different name um, all at once, you know, was, I think they shout out John Brown and Robinson, all as his, uh, his names. And then we've got Johnny at one point talking to Eve about how much he loves her and all this and uh, holds her in his arms. And that's when she looks down at that piano that I was talking about earlier and sees the empty bench and her mind immediately goes to Smith. And I found that to be very nice. And then we have the famous taxi scene. And I did want to call this out because there's, there's kind of a nice thing that happens with this movie as far as moving vehicles we start off the movie with them in a car with jonathan and eve in a car and them going like a bat out of hell through london and telling the story and then we have this moment of smith and eve in a taxi as they're on their way to this garden party which to me really looks much more like a carnival i don't know what uh, garden parties are supposed to be like and then at the very end we have a fake vehicle we have this fake carriage that is underneath the stage at the at the playhouse and that's where the big confession comes from so it's kind of this nice kind of mirror image of the car at the beginning with this stage but then right in the middle we have this taxi ride and this is basically where Eve and Smith kind of fall in love they've they've already been set up but this is the moment where they kiss and where they you know, he kind of confesses to her that he's in love with her. And it's a nice, very, to me, it's a great scene. But I, again, reading through some of the, the, um, critiques of the film, some people just didn't buy this whatsoever. And they found this to be the worst acting that Jane Wyman gives in the film. I don't know. I, I found it to be completely credible. Yeah, me too. I thought it was sweet. Uh, it didn't bother me at all. But I think what you say about the motion is really interesting. The three, the three rides, or the third one is not a ride, and they're um, actually they don't even move at all. I mean, even their bodies don't move, much less the carriage itself. Yeah, and sometimes not even their faces move at all. They with the way that Jonathan is in that close up and just intense and same thing with her and you see their eyes and i noticed too when they do get in close for their kiss in this taxi ride the music is just the piano is really super heavy in here so again going back to that piano motif charlotte has gone from funeral to garden party all in one day and we do start off with the the garden party kind of um it's raining at the beginning and then quickly turns nice and we get that nice shot of the sea of umbrellas which mm-hmm. i think there was what it foreign correspondent was kind of the same shot of all those umbrellas it is. yeah i don't know one of the earlier hitchcock films mm-hmm. and it was great because uh when they get into the taxi eve sees that smith has an umbrella and she's just like questioning why he would even bring it and i do like that when they're at the garden party, it's pouring down rain. So it's like, okay, yeah, Smith actually kind of knows a little something here. And Smith gives this great line, too, to to Eve, because she wants to basically get back onto the case, uh, or she might be uh, called back onto the case. And uh, he says to her that every time I know what color your eyes are, you run away. And it's true. He, she really doesn't let him get too close to her very much at all. 
This is also where we get the appearance of Patricia Hitchcock in here. And I just feel bad for Patricia Hitchcock sometime. Her character's name is Chubby Bannister, which is just not very nice at all. But some people have said that this whole film is about, like, Pat's being in the, you know, taking acting lessons. I think she was in the Royal Academy or something, and Hitchcock didn't like it. And so that the relationship between the Commodore and Eve is like a relationship between Hitchcock and his daughter. As You know, some people have, have like, made a whole, like, one person actually, you know, writes several pages about this. And I'm not sure, you know, that that's that fruitful way to go, but it's an interesting thought. So the way the Commodore is sort of like kind of making fun of her acting attempts, it would be, you know, Hitchcock making fun of Patricia by calling her Chubby Bannister and stuff like that. Yeah, I wish there was more Patricia Hitchcock in here. I really like when she shows up, but she's only in, like, what, two scenes, maybe? Yeah, two scenes, two short scenes. And she's there entertaining Smith and everything. And poor uh, Eve, as soon as she gets there, there's the the maid, Nellie, shows up, and she wants more money. And she uh, starts talking about how she's going to call the police, and she really knows that Eve is not a reporter. Eve doesn't have any money on her, so she ends up having to call her father and bring the father father into here and i love that uh, when she describes nelly at one point she says that it's the girl that i'm understudying so again with more of the theatrical stuff and freddie is also at the party he sees eve there and fetches her charlotte needs her to um uh, dress her for this or needs her to be at this performance apparently when she goes in to see Charlotte, I do like that Charlotte's like, where have you been? I thought you were dead. Eve starts to tell this whole story, and Eve does keep bringing up her father when she is this Doris character, and Charlotte's just not having any of it. At one point, she's like, don't confide in me. Just pour me some tea. You know, just leave me alone. I don't need to know any of your stuff. But this is a great moment, and this is the moment that we were talking about when it comes to why this film is so memorable for us, because this whole carnival, this garden party scene, is where so many things come to a great head. We have this whole meeting of the worlds. This is the the moment that I was talking about where we don't want Smith to know that Eve is playing this Doris role. We don't want Charlotte to know that Eve is not this maid and all this kind of stuff. And we have all of these things happening. We have Nellie doing the blackmail thing, showing up here when she shouldn't. We've got the father interacting with, with Nellie, which I, I love that moment when Eve looks out of the curtains, looks out of the tent and sees Nellie and sees her father who has now shown up and has some money for Nellie and is pointing at both of them and signaling to both of them. And they're like, what me, you know, <laughs> It's like a dumb show, so it's more more theater there. This is the moment, too, where we've got the Commodore standing there, and he looks down at one of the, the fellow Rada students, uh, friends of E's, and looks at the dress and sees the stain kind of show up onto the dress and gets the idea of putting some blood onto a baby doll and having someone show this doll to her, like basically, you know, trying to force her hand, trying to get Charlotte to break character as it were. And trying to induce stage fright. And this bit where he goes over and tries to buy one of the dolls from this woman. Would you like to shoot it up? No, 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 I hate firearms. I wonder if I could possibly buy one of those dolls. A doll? Yes, please. 
Which doll? Oh, any doll. That, that doll. Really? Yes, I suppose you could, but you'll have to pay for yes, it. Yes, I know, I know, but how much, please? Well, it's for the orphans. Yes, yes I know, I know, but how much? You are sorry for the orphans, aren't you? Of course, of course I am, but how much? Yes. We all are, aren't we? Well, I suppose at least four pounds. Give me the gun. It's that really nerve-tingling, you know, suspense there where, like, you know, okay, give me the gun. You know, I'll do it already. You know, give, give me the doll. <laughs> and it's, it's similar to when she's in the pub and she's trying to, you know, talk to the detective and this man comes up and goes, oh, my dear, you know, and <laughs> it's like, and, and you're getting so, like, oh, my God, you know. <laughs> and it's just, it's just great. Uh, I, you know, I, it's like being uh, tickled, you know. It's just like, oh, my God, <laughs> you know. Stop it, you know. Um yeah, it just, uh, it's a wonderful, you know, lighthearted. You don't see that kind of suspense today in films. Just, you know, only Hitchcock could do this. There's this whole thing, too, this whole play of, um, I don't know if the Commodore ever takes a shot or if he just keeps trying to say that other people's, shot, other people's shots are his. Yeah, it's not clear. Yeah, the one kind of bigger man who's next to him says that he made the shot so he takes his doll even though the commodore is like wait no that was my shot and then when the the man you know kind of like you know brussels her a little bit he's just like oh very good shooting very good shooting and then he goes over and he hunches over this little guy (laughs) who i absolutely love it's uh kenneth cove is the guy's name and he was one of the jurors in murder the earlier hitchcock film the commodore is over his shoulder basically and and when the guy makes a shot he's a dead eye with uh, a rifle (laughs) the commodore barely even says anything and this little man just like brussels you know like does this little thing with his fingers and he's just like yo very good shooting sir and and basically runs away kind of thing but that's how the commodore gets this baby doll and there's this whole set up and getting this uh I guess it's a, a Boy Scout to take this doll up to show. Yeah, like a little who's... Cub Scout. He's a tiny little thing. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say he didn't look old enough to be a Boy Scout. What, what do we think about cut hands when it comes to uh, Freudian imagery? Anything we, we got? It, anything there? Well, given that at the end, Johnson's going to be castrated by the so-called safety curtain, um, I would say that he inflicts a cut on himself. But... Um, only so as to gain more power over the woman. And this scout, I love this scene where we are following this scout with this dress, and he stops at one point off stage, and the Commodore is basically like, no, 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 keep going, keep going, keep going. Another director, you know, directing moment that he's doing, telling the, the Cub Scout to get up onto stage, and that is where charlotte loses it and does break character and this is the moment where now everything is on display for the world even people who aren't on stage seem to be kind of thrust into the spotlight because we've got smith looking and smith seeing this stuff we've got um charlotte calling or or freddie calling eve to the stage as Doris and her kind of admitting that she is this Doris character, because at this point the police are looking for Doris to question her because that she did pull that faint and um, kind of spoil their investigation earlier. And it's basically everything is out on the table with this one moment here. This is also where we have this audible flashback at one point, there's a line that gets uh, recounted at this 
point, and then we do a fade to black. So we've got really kind of a very clear end of Act Two happening at this point. But I found it interesting that you know we we talk a lot about the flashback that we got earlier in the film, but we don't talk a whole lot about this audible flashback of a line being recounted. Do you think there's anything between Cooper and Miss Emily? But Eve hasn't been here for days. Doris. And then we move into the third act where we have this whole thing, which seems to be the Commodore having told the story now. At least it feels like we're joining us, things in mid-action, and it feels like the Commodore has been telling all of this story to... Um, I'm trying to remember who his audience is, but it feels like there's a moment where he is recounting what has happened at the garden party up until this point. Let's go on over to the end of the film. There's a confession scene, and then there's the real confession scene. There's the whole idea of putting this microphone behind a dress and trying to make Charlotte admit to her wrongdoing. And I found it interesting that they're putting this microphone basically um, <laughs> under a dress. Uh, I can't remember, Tanya, if you, you called that out in one of our emails together or not. No, I do in my book, but... That's where I read it. See, I, I could read it in your voice, or I heard it in your voice. I didn't know where I read it at. Yeah, we're, we're better to, to put this, the the, uh, the tool of her undoing, than under these skirts here. Yeah, right, her, her guilt, right. They can't get her to admit to the murder, to murdering her husband, but they can get her to admit to kind of going along with this whole thing. And I love this whole idea of they have this microphone and rather than <laughs> rather than recording it or you know having just a speaker someplace, it plays out to the entire theater, this empty theater where the only people who are by the seats are these policemen. And all of this is being broadcast from, again, backstage, back in Charlotte's dressing room. And that's one of the confessions that we have one of the moments that we have uh, but really the big one is the one that i was talking about earlier in the stagecoach where we finally get the truth coming out of jonathan and this is where jonathan just is on the verge of losing it and i love of course the performances in here especially of the guy that plays jonathan where he just really does a, a terrific job of being right next to unhinged. And you know, when I saw this movie, I thought, man, the actor who plays Jonathan is really kind of overacting, I thought. And he's so wide-eyed. But then when you get to the end and you go, oh, he's insane. <laughs> I understand his performance now. The critics really disliked his performance a lot. And, you know, I think for the same reasons probably you did all the way through. Um, and I... I think that's why a lot of people even see it as a lesser movie is because they don't think the acting is as good as obviously Jimmy Stewart or Cary Grant could produce. At one point, does he mention that he has killed before other yeah. than? Yes, yes. Because he says that Eve could be his third victim. And then that would prove that he was insane rather than just being a murderer. And we get that great shot of his hands as he's thinking about strangling her, which is really much more of the typical Hitchcock way of killing somebody. Mm -hmm. I think strangulation really plays into a lot of his films. Well, of course, with rope and everything. A stranger's on a train. Uh, Francie. He's much more of a strangler, or his characters are much more stranglers than they are beating somebody over the head with a poker. Though we 
I found it interesting that that was the same way that people that someone was murdered in murder back in 1930, 20 years before this. Oh, yeah. But but I love this whole thing where we're showing his hands and he's getting ready to to choke her with his hands and she puts her hands on his and is trying to calm him down. And then that again, you know, talking about strange shots in the film, that weird slow-mo shot of her leaving the carriage. Oh. I was just like, wow, this is very very interesting. Yeah, that was I thought it was my DVD or something. <laughs> uh, and I thought I thought to myself, oh, it's slow motion. Is he going to strangle her now all of a sudden? I thought it was something weird was going to happen. We haven't read the book um, that this is based on. And I, I'm trying to imagine, like, in, because in the book, the character Freddy was the killer. I think maybe they kind of improved upon the book here, possibly. I think maybe the, the whole revelation in the book might, it must be very mundane. Oh, it's her boyfriend who is the killer. I mean, here it's just like, wow, so... Jonathan, who we've been assuming is innocent, is actually <laughs> the real killer. It, you know, all along. Uh, it's just so. So yeah, I mean that that that's. I thought that was interesting reading about it. Like, oh yeah, he was not the killer in the book. I'd be interested to know at what point you do do start to question him, if at all, because I think I questioned him early on, not it's like, at the very beginning, but sort of towards the middle, especially when he's confronting Charlotte. Uh, well, for me, it's like you can question it because we saw the flashback. <laughs> it's like, well, oh, the flashback. That's true. Yeah, yeah. You know? Okay. Right. And then, right. then right. I found out, no, the flashback is false. And my brain, my film loving brain, going, no, you can't do that, Hitchcock. <laughs> you, can't, yeah. you can't show us a flashback and it's false. <laughs> and I was just like, wait, what? <laughs> so, yeah, that's, yeah. I, I wonder what people thought of that when the critics and, you know, when they saw They hated it. it. Oh, they hated it. Oh. The- that's one reason it's not considered a good film. I don't say I. Yeah, I've never seen that in, in another film where the flashback is false. Huh. You know what I was thinking of more recently. I mean, you you, you mentioned Sunset Boulevard, um, Mike. You know where it turns out to be narrated by a dead man. Um, but there's also like Gone Girl. Did you guys see that? Because they have lying flashbacks yes. throughout that, and nobody seems to like mind so much. At least from what I could tell. I think filmically now it is an acceptable thing. Yeah. I think that after a movie like The Usual Suspects, people are seem to be a little bit... I mean, Usual Suspects, I know I was going to get into this later, but I'll, I'll just put this out here now. Usual Suspects, for me, when I watched that movie... Uh, and I found out that the whole movie was a lie. I was just like, okay, well, that was kind of interesting, but I don't really ever need to see this movie again. I'm I'm done with this, you know. And now I know that everything is a lie. When it comes to something like The Sixth Sense, where again we're not necessarily being lied to, but the truth is being hidden from us, and things aren't necessarily true that we're seeing in a way. And it was like one of those, like you know, look at this lie from a different version. It seems to be the truth, you know. I can watch that movie again, and I appreciate the way that the lies are being told and that the way we're not being shown things. But, yeah, Usual Suspects, I'm done with that movie. I never have to see that movie again because I know the whole thing is, is a fabrication. Mm. And I think that some people reacted to stage fright much in the same way as far as how dare you lie to me about this stuff rather than thinking, okay, this is a fabrication. And again, kind of what we're talking about as far as who is 
telling us the fabrication and why, you know, who is in control of the narrative and how does that really differ from from real life. And I know one complaint about stage fright was that the lie is never rectified by showing us the true flashback. We never get to see what... I do too. I love that. And I love the lying flashback, but I just know that it really pissed a lot of people off. Everybody seemed to like that Norman Bates turned out not to have a live mother. And, you know, mm. so I, you know, I, I don't get why, why this kind of felt so, so uh, insulting to people. Annoying. One thing that always rings false for me in Psycho is that moment where the psychiatrist has to explain everything to us in very painful detail. And I wonder if that was Hitchcock kind of covering his ass a little bit after something like a, a stage fright where there was this lie to things. But even again, to your point, Tanya, like when it comes to Vertigo, there are so many lies being told in that. But at least I guess we kind of get the – do we get the rectified – flashback then yes, yes we, we do get we get yes. judy judy doing the flashback yes. yeah right so we have either in the case of psycho we have the psychiatrist who has to in painful detail tell us how norman could have done this where the voice of the mother was coming from and even seeing the voice of the mother coming out of norman's head at the very end or you get the rectified uh, flashback with judy so in this one yeah we don't get that because after he makes his confession and it's all just him talking and the reaction from Eve, you know, he goes out, uh, runs through the, the, uh, theater and then gets bisected basically by the safety curtain, which falls on him. And that's it. We don't get any kind of, you know, there's, there's barely any denouement at all. We get as Eve is looking to see what happened to, uh, Jonathan, Smith actually pulls her head back and denies her the sight of what's happening there. And then they walk off into the distance, into the, these the pools of light with the piano music playing. And that's it. That's the end of the film. So we never really get to see what truly happened with that. And yeah, to your point, I love it. I'm glad that they did it the way that they did. But And I can, I guess I can understand why people didn't like it for that reason, but... I found it to be a, a terrific twist of the knife. I mean, what you said about, you know, being like through with the movie, um, I think, you know, to the extent that it's a mere whodunit and that's all you care about is like, you know, who did the murder, then once you found out, why would you go back? But when it's a Hitchcock movie and, you know, we're talking about how, how, you know, how, how rich it is, you go back for many other reasons besides finding out who, like, Keller was. Well, yeah, I mean, to quote Hamlet, the play's the thing, really. I mean, it's so much fun seeing how it's laid out. And, again, how the the whole idea of the stage life versus real life plays out, which, to me, is right, the Right, so it the rewards movie. the second viewing, because the first viewing, you're like, you know, okay, what's going on here, what's going on there? But then, like, once you know, then the pleasure is, like, right, going back and seeing more the second time in light of your knowledge rather than, you know, entering it with like no knowledge. 
We're going to take a little break and play an interview with Patrick McGilligan, author of Alfred Hitchcock, A Life in Darkness and Light, after these brief messages. We are the Popcorn Poops. My name is Dustin. And my name is Jessica. And together we produce Popcorn Poops, the best married couple movie commentary track podcast on the internet. Join us each week as we take turns picking films and then watch and discuss them together. If you're at home or with a computer or device, you can sync up the movie and watch it right along with us. However, you don't have to sync up the film to enjoy the show. Feel free to tune in like you would to any other podcast. Please visit us on the internet at www.popcornpoops.com. Again, that's www.popcornpoops.com. From, from page to screen. To screen. So they have, nine times out of ten, they have to send it back to you unopened or just throw it in the garbage can. Things don't always look exactly as we envision our life to look. But sometimes it works out and turns out even better. Gregor Fisher, his bacon number is two because he was uh, appeared with January Jones in Love Actually and January Jones and Kevin Bacon appeared in X-Men First Class together. I've got to say, the very Harold and Kumar 3D Christmas. Now that just makes me <laughs> want to rush out. It's about the acting, about the writing. That's really what theater is. For me. Probably had more names than uh, than Prince or whatever. <laughs> Never mind, there's a joke for the oldies. Um, oh, it'd be like, who's Prince? Who's oh, he? I'd just like to see uh, Mr. Freeze hiring his bad guys going, right, okay, so you're a psycho, right, can you ice skate? Head over to iTunes, Spreaker, and Stitcher and put in the search box from page to screen. Hey. Hello. A little bit of introduction. We are the Film Room cast. I am Albert Weltfong. I am Austin Shin. And we talk about movies. We just we talk about anything we like to our heart's content. We talk about everything from the very best films ever made to the very worst. <laughs> and we have scraped the bottom of the barrel on the worst ones. It's it's not what you'd expect either. No, no, no. We are the uh, kind of cast for which Birdemic is a step above some of the stuff we've covered. I hesitate to say this, but the room is a little bit higher than some of the stuff we've covered. But on the other hand, we've also covered stuff like The Godfather, Magnolia. We've covered the very best cinema has to offer, the very worst, so don't try to pigeonhole us. And of course, we like to talk about the hot-button topics. We try not to get too political, but we take a political stance. We're people, we have to. We have... A huge backlog. We've been running for about three years. We've got casts on the MPAA. We've got stuff on, like, adaptations. We've got stuff on movies that have been turned into TV shows. A couple of nostalgia retrospectives looking at things like movie theaters and video stores. Proud of those ones. And we've even got at least one cast on a movie that doesn't exist, so... (laughs) Got that. Oh yeah, with uh, with more to come. So that's us. That's us. Uh, so yeah, listen to the film room. I have to credit the backtrack. It is from John Carpenter's album Lost Themes. I suggest picking up that album. It's a really great album. But yeah, you can find us at thefilmroom.podbean.com or on iTunes if you prefer to subscribe there. We're out there. Yeah. Thank you all. Hope you listen to us and good night. All right. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show.
you lucky son of a gun. I like the Marlena Dietrich film, as I think of it, as, you know, stage fright, um, much more than most people do, although it probably is a minor film. But I partly like it because going on in the background of that film is so much personal and professional turmoil. And I see the professionalism of Hitchcock and, um, you know, really the greatness of Hitchcock steering that to, you know, pretty satisfying conclusion as a film, meaning it's pretty good considering, you know, no one thinks of it as a major Hitchcock film. Most people probably think of it as a minor Hitchcock film. But it's right at the time that um, he's transitioning from Myron Selznick representation to to uh, Lou Wasserman representation, which begins with rope, but it's it, but Lou Wasserman quite shrewdly kept carving out more and more power and autonomy for Hitchcock, and um, so it's a, at a very interesting period in his life and in Alma's life too. Tell me a little bit more about this whole first Atlantic deal because it was interesting that he did one in, with in the U.S. and then he back over to England and was Stage Fright the first movie that he had made in England since the Selznick days? Uh, well, he made Under Capricorn there in between and that was a big disaster. See, here's the thing. He had known, you know, Lord Bernstein or Sidney Bernstein since the 1920s when they were kicking around and filmed together. And uh, Sidney Bernstein was a very uh, political person. He was a uh, you know, anti-fascist before it was fashionable. Um, he was very left-wing, uh, very intellectual, Jewish, um, and very, very um, comradely with Hitchcock. They got along really, really well and had always talked about working together. And really, it was Selznick's, it was this sort of unhappiness with Selznick and the the inability to get along with Selznick or to, in you know, in the Selznick world to basically, you know, accede to Selznick's every, like, demand and whim, of which there were endless numbers, that, you know, caused him to go back to uh, Lord Bernstein, well, then Sidney Bernstein, during World War II, and um, to make... Um, anti-fascist, um, anti-Nazi shorts um, for Sidney Bernstein, who had been put, put in charge of the British you know, World War II film effort, and um, did some really remarkable, uh, courageous uh, film work uh, Hitchcock did, um, culminating in the, the uh, Holocaust or the concentration camp films, that uh, film that was never released, but Hitchcock, many Hollywood directors from Europe um, had turned down or for various reasons could not do that film, and Hitchcock committed himself early on to it, so early that he was able to say to the photographers, uh, don't cut, do it with a moving camera so no one will doubt that it's true, and you know, give them camera advice. And then he, he went over to England several times during World War II, partly to see his mother and partly to help his mother, but also to, and to, and to see his family members, but also to um, aid in the uh, anti-Nazi World War II effort. He made a couple of really great, uh, you know, French resistance shorts, which, which you can find and see, and they're quite interesting. And then uh, he helped a lot in Hollywood with dubbing uh, and making U.S. versions of, 
of these kinds of films to show in theaters. And then ultimately he made this, uh, he worked on this concentration camps film that was never released because actually it was so strong um, in, in subject matter and in terms of what it showed that by the time the war was over with and everybody was trying to make friends with the Germans, the Allies were not very supportive of it. And it wasn't until, oh, you know, about 50 years later that that footage began to be rediscovered and then now it's being assembled and you can, now it's been assembled and you can, you can watch it. And it's quite powerful. And so Hitchcock was devoting himself to these kinds of things under Sidney Bernstein's aegis and reacquainting himself while in London working on these kinds of things with old friends like Angus MacPhail, uh, who is the, the inventor of the, or, you know, purportedly the inventor of the MacGuffin theory of, of storytelling in the cinema, which, which we all love, and which Hitchcock adopted wholeheartedly. And um, they began to talk about forming a company together and doing the kinds of movies they wanted to do. And the word transatlantic was very important because they wanted to make films that could be shown on both sides of the Atlantic, in England and in America, where in both cases they would be understood, meaning you know cultural differences would somehow be smoothed over, whether it be in jokes or censorship, but also subject matter. Uh, and uh, that they would also, you know, be commercially successful ultimately um, in both both countries. This was, by the way, a long, long a dream of the British cinema, and it really harked back to when Hitchcock got started in the cinema in 1919 or 1920, when he worked to work went to work at Islington, which was founded as a branch of Paramount Pictures U.S. as a way, or at least they thought it might be a way of establishing a foothold in the British market by making films that were half American and half British. So really he was continuing his own, you know, heritage by, by doing this. And that's what transatlantic was supposed to be as well as it was supposed to be intelligent literary films by two old friends, Hitchcock and Sidney Bernstein, who who sorely wanted to go into business together and work together, as opposed to Hitchcock working with somebody like Selznick, who he he respected and and admired, but really didn't agree with about everything. Whereas Sidney Bernstein was not a guy who was going to tell you how to recut, you know, the scene, um, or in the case of like Spellbound, hire Salvador Dali, paying him a lot of money, and then cut cut all the episodes or the vignettes to shreds and just keep the paintings, you know, or the sketches that, that Salvador Dali had done. Because, um, you know, David O. Selznick was not only uh, decisive at times, but indecisive, and he was a maddening person to work with. Well, Sidney Bernstein really adored Hitchcock and said, whatever you want to do, let's do it. And they would talk it over and give them give their own best ideas to it. And so... Um, Rope, um, and then under Capricorn, both based on British sources, uh, and then Stage Fright, also a British source, and with a lot of British uh, writers, uh, you know, involved behind the scenes, sometimes more than were reflected in the credits. Um, these were intended to be transatlantic stories. Or that is British stories adapted to an American for an American audience. And Rope, they did it literally. You know, they they took it to New York, 
uh, they adapted it to New York. Um, and, uh, but, and it was originally a Patrick Hamilton play and then Arthur Lorenz and Hume Cronin came in and Americanized it in various ways. Uh, and the other ones, uh, under Capricorn, I think it's Helen Simpson is her name, the person, he actually, Hitchcock did several works by Helen Simpson and, um, not that, that was a disaster. You know, Rope was a commercial disaster, and Under Capricorn was really an aesthetic disaster because Hitchcock had, you know, conceived of doing a uh, film that was even more than Rope based on the moving take uh, or the, you know, the continuous take without a cut. And um, he eventually had to abandon that. It was not a great property. It was not a great script. Actually, Alma felt very responsible for it because she had she had really worked very hard on it, as she did on almost all Hitchcock films up to this point in time. Um, and then it leads up to stage fright uh, for Transatlantic. And it, so it wasn't the first time he went back to London, but it's the first time he used London, you know, in the way that uh, he had used it in the 30s. Now, one of the things that seemed to be a part of the 30s film and then definitely 30s films, I should say, and then definitely a part of Stage Fright is this whole idea of class. He really seems to be playing with that in Stage Fright quite a bit. Yeah, he's still very keenly aware of it. You don't see it at all in the American films. Well, you see it a little bit because, you know, people like Robert Cummings are always kind of the ordinary Joe or the John Doe, even even Joel McRae and Foreign Correspondent. Uh, but later on, maybe Jimmy Stewart. You know, they're they're ordinary Americans to some extent. Uh, but yeah, he's keenly aware of it. He never lost that keen awareness of of class in England. And you know, even at the end of his life, he's he's quite sharp with Cockney humor. And uh, you know, he's still reading the London newspapers for the soccer teams that he's rooting for, which tend to be from from the areas that you know, not not the posh areas. And uh, yes, it's, he goes back to it. And by the way, it's in frenzy too. I mean, he never lost it. He never lost it. He even though he in his lifetime with his family rose up to a kind of I would say secure middle class status uh, before he entered film. Um, he 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 always felt himself to be the kid who stank of fish, you know, um, and the the fishmonger's son, which is you know how he was marked in school, and uh, it was class. Uh, he was not middle class until he was old enough that it no longer mattered. You referred to Stage Fright as being the Marlena Dietrich film more than even the Hitchcock film. What was his relationship like with her? Well, I write about it quite a bit in my book. It's quite fun to write about because Marlene Dietrich is such a character, um, uh, meaning such a, you know, there, there you have somebody who's more powerful and attractive than David O. Selznick, so, and also probably more important to the success of the film. So whatever she says, you have to listen to. But plus, uh, whatever she said was pretty smart, you know. And uh, that's, you know, the the story of the script is based on a novel, um, and um, he took that character in the novel and he changed it, you know, so it was more of a singer um, or more of a, you know, chanteuse. And then he 
Um, he developed it, and there's a long series of scriptwriters involved, quite interesting sequence of scriptwriters involved um, that develop it, which is very characteristic of Hitchcock. And one thing that's you know clear in the development is that that part is being built up, so that there are star moments, you know, and then. He approaches uh, Dietrich uh, hat in hand, which is the best way to do it, and uh, they meet. Uh, they meet in New York. And uh, by the way, she loves the rough draft. She says it's a rough draft. I don't really know, you know, what's going to happen next. But uh, you know, you with your Earl Stanley Gardner brain will will no doubt figure it out. And I'm looking forward to talking to you about it. Very humorous exchange of of uh, communications and she comes to New York and she's a, a he's he initially reaches her at you know the hotel Georgie V in Paris but she comes to New York they meet and you know one of the big issues is like what song is she going to sing and she wants to sing you know La Vie and Rose because uh, she's great friends with uh, the great the great uh, you know French singer who uh, who was also her lover who made that her signature song Edith Piaf and his guy goes, oh, yeah, well, that's good, that's good, you know. And meanwhile, he's kind of pushing for this Cole Porter song that no one's ever heard of before. Um, or that's obscure, let's put it that way. And so you see this negotiation going on between them. Um, and the Edith Piaf song is used in the film, but never completely. And then you see the Cole Porter song uses a real highlight. And as I say in my book, staged as if Vincent Minnelli is behind the camera, because Hitchcock was a great aficionado of musicals. And he, there are great musical numbers in many of his films, and he knew how to stage dances, and he knew how to stage songs. Um, and so he really, he created this role for her that, from my point of view, I mean, Dietrich has a pretty great career, but by the end of the 1940s, the great roles are few, fewer and further between, and this is a great role for her. It's better than the film, meaning her role is better than the film, because while her film is being, while her role is being built up, uh, you know, Jane Wyman's is in various ways uh, uh, becoming less important, including because Jane Wyman was less less attractive of a personality on screen. Um, the same with the same with the other people in the film. So um, there's a lot of pleasures in the film, including I think Hitchcock's daughter, because that's one of the interesting things going on behind the scenes. Hitchcock's daughter is going into the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. So they create a lovely role for her called Chubby Bannister, which I, I think is one of her biggest roles. And it's not as, maybe not as important as the role in Strangers on a Train, but you really get a good flavor from her. And it's being written by Whitfield Cook. He's one of the writers behind the scenes. Uh, he was very close with the Hitchcock family for uh, quite a long period of time in the late 1940s. And he had directed her on Broadway, so he knew her you know, really well, her her capabilities as an actress. So it has a lot of lovely uh, bits in the whole film. But I think it is a real spotlight for Marlena Dietrich, who, once she became involved, all the way through was adding little bits to the script, her own ideas to the script, um, which Hitchcock would take or not take, or diplomatically not take, but he, he but some of them were quite good. And she would also, of course, when the filming was, you know, taking place, have ideas for lighting and camera placement. Again, all of which are were 
pretty good. And Hitchcock was very good at taking a good idea. And, you, you know, uh, Marlene and Dietrich had good ideas. I was curious how he got along, if you know, with uh, Alistair Sim. Well, I write in my book about how Alistair Sim came to him as, as a suggestion from um, one of the writers of the script, James Bridie. Uh, one of the probably the most important writer in the sense that, of what you see up on the screen, although there were a lot of structural writers before that who were very important. And um, uh, he had he, he was a playwright, and uh, he was a, I think he was Scottish, but he was certainly English, British, and um, he uh, you know uh, had had written plays in which Alistair Sim was was uh, the star or an important character on the stage. So he recommended him. And uh, of course, Alistair Sim was not known at all in Hollywood, you know, much less in, in the U.S. Uh, but, but Hitchcock had a, a tremendous casting uh, ability and a knowledge of, of everybody performing everywhere. So I'm not sure. So I, I doubt that, you know, Alistair Sim was like a unknown commodity, but he was pushed. And, um, uh, he's he's good in the film. It's kind of fun to see him in the film. I think I say in my book that Hitchcock was kind of driven crazy by Alistair Sims' overacting and his mugging, and you know, which is which is uh, he he's a kind of um, oh I wouldn't say exaggerated actor, but he's a very active actor, you know. And Hitchcock um, prefers underacting, you know. He. He, he tells people that, you know, the blank page is better than a page with a lot of sentences scribbled on it. And the blank page is your face, you know, when the camera is on it. And that's not Alistair Sim. You know, his, his, his face is not a blank page. But, uh, you know, the movie in various ways um, is, is, you know, somehow it's not as satisfying as something like, you know, Strangers on a Train uh, or the, the great period of films in the 1950s. And uh, for various reasons, it's not quite as satisfying. So, so for the for the cinema fan or the movie fan, and probably for Hitchcock too, in the end, you know, having Elster Elster Sim in scenes is a great, you know, welcoming respite, you know, because he really does, you know, bring the scenes alive. He plays, um, if I remember, correct me if I'm wrong, he plays Jane Wyman's uh, father, her, her, her like near do well father. He had absolutely no reputation or box office value in the U.S. Um, and he's, he's, I think it's characteristic of Hitchcock's ability to, you know, find these English character actors who really bring, you know, a lot of vitality to like the smallest possible scene. We're back and we were talking about stage fright. I was really glad that I was able to talk to Mr. McGilligan. You know, I've been uh, listening to another book about Hitchcock lately, which is uh, Spato's book about Hitchcock, the, uh, what was it, Dark Side of Genius. And I have to say, I think 25% of that book is actually uh, Spato just fat shaming Hitchcock. (laughs) (laughs) It just... It's pretty terrible. Just like every chapter has to give me an update about Hitch's weight, which I found to be annoying. And I I really found annoying that movies like Stage Fright were 
almost more like a, a footnote than they were anything else. I, I I know more about Hitchcock driving or not driving in America than I do know about this film. And again, you know, it's I find this to be a very fascinating film and. Apparently not everybody does. This is what they call uh, the, the minor Hitchcock, as it were, in quotes. There's a book that I picked up recently called Hitchcock Nonetheless, <laughs> where this movie is spotlighted. And it's like, okay, boy, that's that's a, that's a pretty terrible title. It's like, well, it's a Hitchcock film. Maybe you haven't really seen it or heard of it. You know, it's, I mean, come on. It's better than Topaz, right? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> But that's not that's a pretty low bar. I was curious, what do you guys think about the relationship between Charlotte and Eve kind of in light of, you know, the we were talking about, you know, the the how many female protagonists there are in Hitchcock films. To me, yes, there is Marnie and, and a few others, but to me the big the most major female centered Hitchcock is the new Mrs. De Winter and um why am I blanking on Mrs. Danvers in Rebecca and that kind of relationship between Rebecca Danvers and Mrs. DeWinter um, and the way that that plays out. Do you guys see any parallels between this one and that one as far as this kind of, I mean, it's almost like Rebecca were alive and in the form of Charlotte. You know, I must say I have sadly not seen Rebecca. It's one I have to see. I haven't seen it, but But as far as, uh, Female, I mean, uh, as far as female protagonists in Hitchcock films, I think of the Shadow of Doubt, because the main character in that one is the um, the daughter uh, in that film. Yeah, Charlie. Yeah, so there's one with a major female character. Um, I can definitely see that, and I can see parallels between this and that one, because the way that Charlie has to investigate Uncle Charlie. Oh, yeah. And that she is our investigator in this one. And she does a better job than the police do, definitely, in that film. And she's she's a bit like uh, the character Eve. She's a bit naive, if you will, very innocent. Uncle Charlie definitely wants to cure her of that as they go along. A very well-known lesbian critic, Patricia White, you know, has talked about um, both Rebecca and uh, Stage Fright as in some ways susceptible of a lesbian reading um, because of this kind of, because of the intensity of the relationship between the two women. I, th- I think there's much more intensity in Rebecca than I actually see in Stage Fright, but um, I think it's an interesting argument. Yeah, there are times where I feel like Charlotte is almost more of a, a, a prop than a character. You know, she she's she's there, but we never get to know her that well. Right, because I mean, I think one critic talks about how she's not really, you know, all the other people are actors and they're also playing and being actors and playing different roles. But Charlotte is Marlena Dietrich. She's just you know an extension of Marlena Dietrich's star persona, um, character. So I think that's you know that's something worth considering in mm. this discussion. But White's thing is that Dietrich is is you know is very much a lesbian icon for sure. And um yeah. and she, she's she's other icons as well, but um important um important lesbian icon and, and that lesbian readers 
our our listening viewers, you know, would be apt to um, find something in this film that maybe other viewers are not so apt to see. So, you know, different viewers bring different interpretation. I mean, different different things they want to see um, or are likely to see in in movies. So, for what that's worth. I think one of the reasons why I don't see Charlotte as being that much of a character compared to some of the other people is because of that flashback where she has had, it almost feels like she's had her power taken away from her because she is being, you know, controlled by Johnny or Jonathan in that flashback by him basically telling the story, or at least it feels like, he is in control of the narrative at that point. And he doesn't necessarily, at that point, he doesn't bring Freddie into the picture. He really makes it seem like uh, Charlotte it has a lot of feelings for him, which then later on we find isn't necessarily the case. Like he has been duped by her. But at that point, when he's telling the flashback, it feels like he's the one who is saying, Charlotte, she's my girl, basically, and I'll do anything for her and she'll do anything for me. And then we find out later on as the movie progresses that that's not necessarily the case. And I I guess, and I'm thinking out loud here, but I guess to that end, it feels like kind of he has removed from her some of her humanness. It feels like he has made her into that prop that I was talking about. She is just this kind of, you know, cipher that we have throughout the rest of this. And it isn't until we get kind of more of the dressing scene that we see the real Charlotte. And then after that, it feels like almost all of the time that we see her, except when she's backstage, she's on stage and she's performing a role. So we don't necessarily, again, get to know the real Charlotte either. So there are very few times where we actually get to interact with her and see what she is really like versus the construct that Johnny gave us at the very beginning of the film. And then having that kind of pulled away from us a little bit as we go on takes, you know, robs her of her power a little bit. I don't know. I think she's pretty powerful from the moment we see her in Widow's Weed smoking and wanting a plunging neckline and sort of talking about hating funerals. And, you know, she seems pretty, pretty in control um, and pretty, pretty nonchalant for, for a woman who's supposedly murdered somebody. So even though we have that story, I feel her power and potency from a very early moment in the film. And we've talked about the dress and the thing that I'm curious about when it comes to the dress, do you see that more as being menstrual blood or being a castration blood i mean there's just there's so many interesting ways that you can read that dress and that blood i mean of course we're supposed to think of it as being cast off from you know the husband's death but just the way that it lands there between her legs i always the, like i was saying at the very beginning of this conversation that was the most interesting thing to me that was what really kept this movie in my mind for all these years it's a very striking image certainly the blood and the white dress i couldn't really quite i mean yes uh, you look at that and go oh is it supposed to represent menstruation or what is it i and if you do say it's menstruation but what does it me- mean in terms i mean in, for the film i mean what is it supposed to uh, you know <laughs> mean ultimately uh 
that's that's what I couldn't figure out anyway. Well, I I connected to the power of female sexuality, and um, um, I think the theater is kind of like a feminine space. It's a feminine space, certainly when she's singing the laziest girl, laziest gal in town. Um, those ruffles that are like you know concentrically around her, you know, seem to be a kind of vaginal space, and I think it's about you know that, that it's, it's very much about femininity and the theater and masculine anxiety um, in the face of possibly duplicitous women. I mean, I see it as about a lot of things. So I think it represents, I mean, I wouldn't say menstruation or castration. Um, I, I, I would say, you know, in the psyche, those two things can be, can coexist, you know, and for, for Hitchcock often the female body represents pollution. I mean, certainly in Psycho, um, when her blood goes down the drain and then she's put in a swamp. So it's it's a lot of those things. And um, I think the fact that the camera comes down exactly where his penis is at the edge of the, at the edge of the stage, I sent you that photo, Mike, so you could see it, is, you know, it suggests a kind of castration anxiety that's 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 at play in this film and so many Hitchcock films. Anyway, that's just part of a longer discussion, so I don't know if that little short summary of what you know, the way I'm thinking about it makes makes sense, but that's, that's all I can do right now. When it comes to the castration of Jonathan, do you see Charlotte as being a castrator? I Charlotte per se, you know, I would just say that there's a kind of anxiety that Stephen Heath once used this great phrase about some other films saying castration is in the air. <laughs> That's what I would say um, is going on in a film and goes on. It's goes in murder. The theater winds up being sort of coextensive with a female transvestite, right? A male, female transvestite, a crossdresser. So I think that the that the sense of an insecurity of masculine identity is um, often at stake in, in Hitchcock's films in general, and he often associates that with the theater. Murder and stage fright, to me, definitely go hand in hand in so many ways. I talked about the poker earlier, and then I find it fascinating that the the half, when they keep saying that the killer is a half, that it ends up being cast rather than half as half in like female. half man, half woman. Yes. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, class definitely plays a huge part in this. And I think, again, that that was much more of when Hitchcock was talking about England. He really brought up the class distinctions mm-hmm. more than necessarily in America. And I think also to two different types of theater are at play too. There's the Royal Academy, serious dramatic art, and then there's the kind of theater that Marlena Dietrich, you know, the sort of musical Chantuzzi kind of thing that, that she does. And that's that's also connected to class. And in murder you have the same thing. You have um the Royal Shakespeare company that Sir John is the is, is is leading and then you have these other characters um who play in more popular kinds of of films and see playing in a Shakespeare movie as being a punishment for <laughs> for not doing the right thing. 
Yeah, you wouldn't see Sir John at a garden party doing a <laughs> uh, a bit of Shakespeare or something. Yeah, no. But but doing Mavi and Rose is definitely okay. Yeah. All right, guys. So I'm going to take another break here and play a preview for next week's show. Progress, a vanity spawned by fear. A vanity spawned by fear. That's right, we'll be back next week with a look at the 1971 Australian film Wake and Fright, from stage fright to waking and fright, I suppose. Before we go, I want to thank this week's guest co-host tanya what has been keeping you busy lately the third edition of my book the women who knew too much hitchcock and feminist theory has just come out so i moved from that to a an article titled remastering the master hitchcock after feminism which is coming out in an academic journal called new literary history and I feel motivated to continue writing some more about Hitchcock. And I think your making me think about stage fright has made me want to write about it. So I'll be doing that next, I think. Well, I look forward to reading that. I have to say that The Women Who Knew Too Much was one of those books that I read in college that really blew the top of my head off because I had really not thought about his work that closely. And just to read some of those readings just uh yeah i still go back to it today well thank you but it sounds like i have to go back and buy the third edition now yeah (laughs) there's an interview with me um by this queer critic david grevin um and there's also now a study guide so how about you philip what are you up to these days first of all i just want to say my last word on stage fright and hitchcock i just want to say i mean it's i i love hitchcock and i love movies but i i cannot (laughs) i cannot analyze (laughs) this movie as well as you guys do um i'm too cynical i think (laughs) to be able to analyze 
uh, all that stuff you see, you see in the film. I must say, you know, it's interesting to watch these Hitchcock films because it's like you see all these elements that will appear in his later films, which I, he, he really was pushing the boundaries, you know, of how to make films. And that's what makes him so good. I need to watch his, <clears throat> some of his earlier films, like Lady Vanishes. I haven't seen that one. Yeah, I think Sage Fright, you know, ultimately, I think it's an interesting film. I think that maybe he was experimenting with something here. I'm not sure if he completely pulled it off with the false flashback and all that. It's, it's a weird film. I, I'm not sure what to make of it fully. But it's interesting, and I, it's definitely worth a watch, I think. As for what I'm up to, um, I'm currently trying to get into film school, actually. Stockholm's Film School. Um, I'm going to be interviewed next month, actually. So I'm going to see how, how that goes. Um, hope maybe I'll get into the school. Uh, I'm trying to pursue, uh, you know, actually work within the film industry. I'm trying to get some kind of job in there. I'm very passionate about film. I am uh, also... But work- cynical, too. Yes, yes, cynical. I am cynical. I am also currently working on this massive... Uh, re-edit of a certain film uh, which is titled Nightbreed, a 1990 uh, horror film written and directed by Clyde Barker who of course is famous for Hellraiser. Now there's a film with a lot of strange Im- Freudian imagery I can tell you. <laughs> a lot of gay parallels in that one. That, a lot of that I picked up actually. Uh, <laughs> a lot to analyze. But that film is it, it's a film with a famous history. It's kind of like The Magnificent Ambersons which I know you did an episode on, Mike. Uh, a film that was just so torn apart by the studio and changed and altered. And there's been all these stories about the missing footage, you know. And I know you had Charles Haydon who did this Altered States. And he talked a little bit about Nightbreed, actually. It was, it was very cool. Uh, there is a director's cut out there, but I wasn't completely happy with the director's cut. I'd seen a longer version of the film before that, a certain a kind of extended cut. And the director's cut just... It was missing so many things, and I just sat there. Where's all that stuff I saw? And now, to make long story short, um, I managed to f- get a hold of hours and hours of film material. I got I have two. I'm example. I have two work prints of the film, which I've used now to basically re-edit the whole movie, the film frame by frame. I have uh, completely reconstructed the film and tried to bring it closer to how the director had envisioned the film to be to begin with. And I worked on the sound, creating new sound design, and I'm currently talking to a composer <clears throat> who might actually create a new score for this film. Very exciting stuff. I mean, I don't know if you've, how familiar you are with fan edits, Mike, but and I've seen it quite a few, but I, I can't think of any, I'm not trying to you know boost my own project here, but, you know, oh, look how great this is, but I've never, I can't think of any on the fan edit that is this ambitious as the one I'm working on. I've seen a fan edit or two myself, but uh, yeah, I'm excited to see what you come up with. It's something I'm, uh, I've been talking about this now for a long time. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah. So I'm hoping to get it done uh, this year, possibly. So that's something to I hope people will see when I'm done. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm I'm going to put it up online so people will watch it on Vimeo.com. Is there a place where uh, people can kind of keep up with the project and what you're up to? Yeah, I think you can. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. My username is Hollow Shape. And, uh, you can follow me on Facebook, I think. I tend to update there as well. Um, I got a blog, but I don't write so much on my blog. Well, hey, thank you again, Tanya and Philip, for being on the show. And thanks to everybody for listening. Be sure to head on over to the website projection-booth.com for more information about my guests and the film, as well as links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show. It's easy. It's free. 
Every review helps the projection booth in our quest for world domination. not cause I shouldn't, it's not cause I wouldn't, and you know, it's not cause I couldn't, it's simply because I'm the laziest gal in town. My poor heart is aching to bring home the bacon, and if I I'm alone and forsaken. It's simply because I'm the laziest gal in town. Though I'm more than willing to learn how these gals get money to burn, every proposition I turn down. Wait, it's not because I shouldn't. Not cause I wouldn't, and you know, not cause I couldn't, it's simply because I'm the laziest girl in town. Nothing ever worries me, nothing ever hurries me, I take pleasure leisurely, even when I kiss. But when I kiss, they want some more. And wanting more becomes a bore. It isn't worth a fighting for. So I tell them this. It's not cause I shouldn't. It's not cause I wouldn't. And you know it's not cause I couldn't. It's simply because I'm the laziest, the laziest gal in If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.